welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. As you stand in honor of the reading of God's word, we will hear from Colossians 2, uh, verses 11 and 12. So let us hear the word of God once again together. Paul writes to these believers and uses terms and describes things that may be unusual to our hearing, but bear great spiritual truth, believe me. He writes, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is God's perfect word. May it break with fresh meaning and power upon our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, uh, we are moving through this epistle, as you know, and there is a big teaching theme in it that involves the confrontation of false teaching. And we are... uh, we're looking at a particular part of the epistle, which is really the heart of how Paul confronts false teaching that was threatening that church. And as then, so now, believers were being tempted to either be thoroughly deceived about spiritual truth and give up what they knew in Christ, or to begin to doubt that Christ's work was enough for them and that the scripture was enough truth for them. So it was... Uh, The attack of the devil upon that church, and believe me, churches today are under the same kind of attack. Now, it's uh, interesting that Paul doesn't go and take apart all the nuts and bolts of the wrong teaching they were hearing. He does some of that in this chapter and a little later in the the epistle, but really what Paul does is he uh, uses an argument from the greater to the lesser. Maybe you've heard people do that in, uh, in arguments over truth. He argues from the greater to the lesser in the, in the sense that he spends his time focusing on the greatness of Christ and amplifying their understanding of how great Jesus is and what Jesus did means in their lives so that when they understand the greatness of Christ and the depth of his word and the wonder of his sacrifice, they won't be tempted to give any credibility to these lesser and false teachings. So, This is often the way Paul worked as he taught his people. In uh, chapter 2, we've already looked at verses 9 and 10, in which he really uh, moves into the argument. The whole point of the last segment of this chapter is revealed actually in verse 8, where Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So he sets the the stake in the ground of of what he's going to say that follows. 
And believers are responsible, we learned last week, to keep themselves in the truth. You're not a helpless, floating victim. You have authority over that mind that's been given you in Christ. And you are to see to it that you're not taken captive. And then Paul tells us that the greatest way to resist false teaching, as I just mentioned, is to be caught up with the greatness of Christ. Verse 9, he says, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, Jesus is everything you'll ever need to experience in the spiritual life. He has been, is now, and always will be God. How could you search for anyone greater? Isn't that a perfect argument? How can you search for anyone greater when Jesus says God is everything, has everything, and in him you can know everything? Then he follows in verse 10 and he says, and you've been filled in him. The miracle of the Christian life is that now Christ dwells in us as believers, Christ in you, the hope of glory, he said earlier in the epistle. And, and, And Paul said at a later point, Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God in me, to live his life out through me. But Christ is present in every believer. So not only is Jesus everything, you have everything. You have access to all that you need to know and all the power that you need to live already through the Christ who dwells in you. His logic is, how how would you ever pay attention to anything else? Don't listen to the bells and whistles. Understand who you already know. So this is how he's moving. But he adds to this now. And in the verses to follow, verses 11 down to verse 15, he talks about the fact that Jesus, who is everything and has everything for the believer, has also done things in your life that no one else has done or can do. Only Jesus can do these things. And in in the stream of verses here, he identifies four fantastic things that Christ has done when he brought you to himself that you may not understand, but when you do, you'll hold to him even more closely. And we're going to study these four things over the next couple weeks. We'll go into two of them today. But if you look at the text, verses 11 all the way down through verse 15, there are four marvelous things he's done. Number one, he's given you a new identity. That's verse 11. We're going to talk about how he changed the very nature of who you are by putting off the the drive of sin within you. It's a miracle that that happened at your new birth. So he gave you a new identity. We'll find that out today. That's verse 11. Second, we'll also study today that he gave you also a new capability to live out a new life, to see his power change the way your future life is, is experienced. You will become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's verse 12, where a new power is working in you now, a powerful working of God just as powerful as the power that made Resurrection Day a reality, you've been led and raised now into a possibility, the possibility of a dramatically new life. So new identity, number one, and a new capability to live into your future, number two. Later we'll get into what he also talks about in verses 13 to 14, and that's a new certainty of just how forgiven you are in Christ. The marvel of the cross is described in verses 13 and 14 in one of the most beautiful ways you'll ever see it in Scripture. This marvelous image of our trespasses and sins being nailed to his cross. 
Oh, the pronouns are important. Our sin, his cross. And the, the, the marvelous certainty of forgiveness. And then finally, he wraps it up in, in verse 15 by talking about the fact that he's given us a victory that no one else could do, where he disarmed the rulers. That's speaking about the satanic powers that held us in the fear of death and has put them to open shame. And now we triumph over them in him. Isn't that a sweep of reality you want to learn more about? Well, we're going to get into it. And only Jesus could have done these things. And so really for the next couple of weeks, I'll be talking to you about only Jesus and what he's done. You see, when you uh, treasure Jesus, you will hold on to Jesus. Last week, we talked about the great tragedy of believers today abandoning the faith. People actually taking on a term in which they say, I decided to deconstruct my own faith. I've never seen anything more tragic in the spiritual life than that term. And we talked about how tragic it is and how, how concerning it is. We talked about the answer to that. And part of the answer is more knowledge and, and, and deeper arguments to defend the, the acceptability of the Christian faith intellectually. But the deconstruction of faith goes far beyond intellectual struggle. I believe it goes to the depth of a personal struggle about who you really know. Do you know Christ in a personal, transformative way? Or are you simply abandoning a belief system you used to have instead of a relationship that you treasure? And I think Paul is saying here, listen, you will not abandon Jesus if you come to treasure all that he is and what he only can do. I'll tell you this, how do you pray for those that are struggling with the idea of abandoning their faith, a younger person in your world, somebody influenced by, by scientific arguments or the secularism of our society? Oh, pray for them to have a deeper intellectual understanding. Give them understanding and resources to answer the intellectual battles. But I'm going to tell you this, you need to also pray for them to fully understand who Jesus is to them. And either to come into a real relationship with him for the very first time, instead of just having a belief system, or if they know him, to understand how much they treasure him. Because they need to come back to him in relationship, not just in belief and conviction. You know, Tim Keller said uh, recently about the walk with Christ that we have. He, says, he said this, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And I think that's a part of this whole issue here of the battle over belief and holding on to faith. You really don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. In other words, you come to treasure him and you will hold on to him. And often that comes in, 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 in tribulation. Now, there's a, if there's a dear one in your life that may be struggling about just walking away from the faith intellectually or personally, this may be hard for you to hear, but one of the things you need to pray over their life may be tribulation. You say, why? Because then they will know who they need to know. And they will need to look to the one, the only one, who can work in their lives in a way that they will be rescued from tribulation. Tribulation leads us to treasure Jesus. And then the second thing you may pray for them is realization. And that's this. Tell them to stay in their Bibles and stay in their personal pursuit of this Jesus whom they claim they may be rejecting and, and ask the Lord to reveal himself to them through the marvel of his word so that they will realize he's more than a belief system. He's a personal, transforming, precious Savior. 
oh, we need to pray for people struggling with the faith battle in that way. Paul was really doing that with these people. They were under a faith battle. They were under intellectual and philosophical assault. And again, rather than just feeding them data, he reminds them of the greatness of Christ. He wants them to realize some things. And so he talks about these things that only Jesus can do. Once he's done them in your life, you will have a hard time abandoning him. And so he wants them to understand them more richly, and so do I for you and for me. Now, there are two today we'll get into, one in verse 11 and one in verse 12. And and I think it's fitting that we'll also follow these understandings today with communion together. Because what verse 11 and 12 talk about are two deeply spiritual realities that are hard to understand simply intellectually. The Spirit of God needs to reveal this over time in your Christian life, but they are marvelous spiritual realities that happened the moment you came to Christ. The first has to do with a change in your identity. We'll see that only Jesus can change who you used to be. And then the second has to do with a change in your capability. Only Jesus can change who you now can be. In each of these verses, I'm going to break it into three parts for discussion. One is I'm going to talk about the biblical image. You've got circumcision, you've got baptism. Both are outward things. Events that are experienced, things that are done to you by someone else, but they each represent, listen, a deeper spiritual truth. That's what he gets at here. A work that Jesus did behind the scenes in your spiritual life that these outer things picture. And finally, there's a personal reality that you're going to draw out of this that will change how you walk with Christ. So let's go first of all to the first thing only Jesus can do, and that is this, only Jesus can change who you used to be, verse 11. Forgive me for the long introduction, but I've got to give you, as I often do, the frame for the picture. So he goes here and he begins to use this language that talks about a physical event that may be unusual, even jarring for you to hear about. He talks about circumcision. And so first of all, let's go to the biblical image. He says in verse 11, In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, what is this all about? And why does he use this somewhat surprising image? Circumcision, as we know, is is really a medical procedure. It's a cutting away of skin from a part of the male body, isn't it? And, And it was really brought into the human experience in God's commandment to the Jews millennia ago. As, a, as an outward sign that they had believed in the God of Abraham. It was instructed to Abraham to be led into a teaching and a practice for all those that were Jews. It was a sign that they believed in the God of Abraham, the only God, the one true God, and that they were dedicated to him. It was a physical procedure that only Jews underwent. Now, as a physical procedure... It was supposed to mirror a deeper spiritual truth, but as we often do, um, a lot of people just get satisfied with the external, with the, with the ritual, and they never go more deeply. And a lot of Jews, including many in, in the time of Christ, and perhaps even today, but and certainly in the time of Paul, believe that if you had that ceremony done on your body, that physical procedure done, that meant you were 
you were as Jewish as you needed to be and that your whole future and eternity was secured if you just had that procedure done. That was as Jewish as you need to be. And basically, you could live any kind of life you wanted as long as that mark was now upon you. And of course, that's not what God wanted it to be at all. It was an outer mark that signified the cutting away of something else inside in your heart. And what was that? It was a cutting away of the desire to sin and to move in rebellion against God. We know this because in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God himself, through Moses, talked to his people, and he talked about a, a, an inner circumcising of the heart, a cutting away of something in who you were as a person. And in Deuteronomy chapter six, uh, pardon me, chapter 30, verse six, Moses said this, and the Lord, your God will circumcise your heart, (laughs) the inner being, who you are as an individual. The Lord, your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Hopefully your children will also be taught by this miracle event. So that what? You will love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So that's about the inner person, the inner decision, the inner loyalties. And he's saying, listen, this outer circumcision, this cutting away of skin from a part of the male body, that's an outer ritual, but it's a sign that God wants the same thing it happened in your inner life. He wants to cut something out of your inner life. And what was that? Your love for sin. Your, your drive for sin. And he wants a new attitude to be born within you in which you have a growing desire not to sin, but to please God. You follow? He wanted a change in their hearts even then. And numerous places in the Old Testament, all through the whole period of his walk with Israel in those days, he would say, you're circumcised on the outside, but your hearts are disloyal to me on the inside. Oh, that you would circumcise your hearts. So this has to deal with something deeper, doesn't it? And that's what Paul is getting at here. You see, it's possible that the false teachers in Colossae were Jewish, (laughs) And that they were telling these Gentile believers, maybe these are Gentile Romans, they had not been circumcised. And they were saying, listen, what Christ did was a good start, but you need to be involved in certain rituals that show how dedicated you are to God. And you need to be involved in certain works and other religious ceremonies that show how dedicated you are to God. You need those to be fully accepted by God. And it's possible that one of the things they were telling them to do was to have this outward procedure done. And Paul here is basically saying, as you go back to Colossians 2, he's saying, listen, somebody may be telling you that an outward ceremony like circumcision is necessary. He's saying, listen, you guys, you you Roman believers, you Gentiles that have now come to Jesus, you've actually already been circumcised in your hearts (laughs) by Jesus. Notice he made that happen in a circumcision made without hands. In other words, it's not physical, it's spiritual. Do you see that? So the outward ceremony could be done by anybody, and it could mean next to nothing for you, but the inward ceremony could only be done by one person. He says, it is a circumcision done without hands, and look at verse 11, it's it's a circumcision of Christ, it's from him, it's by him. So hold all that in your mind, that's the biblical image, let's go to the second thing. It reflects a spiritual truth, don't miss this. He says, you've been circumcised in your hearts. The outer thing doesn't matter, but the inner thing is what we look for. And that is what Jesus did when you came to know him. 
He did something to change you inside when you came to him by faith. He cut away something. Notice it says here in verse 11, it was a putting off of the body of the flesh. Now what's that all about? In circumcision, a part of the outer flesh is taken away. In your spiritual rebirth, when you come to Jesus, a dimension of your, of your inner person was taken away. Often Paul used the words, the flesh, in his writing, not to describe the physical body. Actually, more frequently, he used the phrase, the flesh, to describe your sin nature or your drive to sin inside. When we say somebody, well, he's just in his flesh, you know, course he is. He's a living physical being, right? No, no. When we see somebody that's a Christian that's really gone off into deep moral sin, we say, well, he's just, he's just satisfying the lusts and the desires of his flesh. What's the flesh that we're all talking about? We're talking about the sin nature, aren't we? We're talking about that drive that dominated us 24-7 before we found Jesus Christ to satisfy our own desires without any care about anybody else and to keep satisfying it over and over again. That's the drive of sin. Paul says here, when you came to Christ, Jesus did a marvelous work in your very being and he cut away that desire and he actually killed it and rendered it powerless over you. Then he gave you a new nature, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, when he came to dwell within you that now desires to obey him. And isn't that true? If you found Christ, didn't you discover a growing desire all of a sudden to want to please God? I know I did. Now, you say, well, I I came to know Christ when I was very young, and I've kind of always walked that way. Oh, bless your heart. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) You're so blessed. You got a lot less wreckage to walk past. But you see, is that desire still growing? And you'll say, yeah, it really is. That's the new nature. That's the new dimension of you. Now, Paul is saying here, you can now know God and serve him because an inner change has occurred in you. God did some surgery and he cut away that desire to displease him and he gave you a new desire to please him. He gave you a new heart. Now, Romans chapter 6 and verse 6 talks a little bit about this. Many parts of the scripture do. And in Romans chapter 6, we we get a little insight on this. He says, we know that our old self, that life and that drive within us that was totally dedicated to self, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now the body of sin there reflects this drive of the flesh that totally dominated you before Christ came into your heart. But now something's happened to that drive for sin. It's been dealt a death blow. The words there, brought to nothing. The Greek text talks about being made powerless. That old person you used to be actually was crucified, put to death. And that body of sin in you, that fleshly drive, was rendered a death blow. Now, does that mean that you never sin again? Well, come up afterward. I'd love to meet a perfect person. That would make my day. I'd put that, I'd put that on social media. No. No, it means that now you desire to please him where you never desired it before. It means that there's a growing ability and desire in you to please God and be more like Jesus and a diminishing drive to not do that. It actually means that sin's power over you 
can have no power in that moment of temptation if you decide in the new man in Christ to stand against it. So important. That is what Jesus alone can do. He gave you a new heart that wants to obey him. That's why earlier in our service we heard read 2 Corinthians 5.17, my life verse, by the way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, a new man, a new creature, different translations. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. He's talking about that dramatic change of identity. So the, the biblical image of circumcision, the cutting away of something, is, is reflecting a deeper spiritual truth that you can now know God and serve God because an interchange has occurred and that drive to sin has been cut away. Its power has been taken down so that you don't need to obey it anymore should you choose not to in Christ. Now, you can become a fleshly Christian in a heartbeat if you decide to just let sin run your life again. But you know what happens then? There's the ruin of sin, but then there's also the wonderful Holy Spirit who's going to come into your life and start dealing with you and chastening you so that you will once again start walking in the new man according to your new mind and you will put sin to death and you will grow in grace. See, this is what the believer has as the privilege. So that's the spiritual truth. Well, what's the personal reality of all this then? Well, this all did happen to you if you're a Christian. Right now, you might be in great battle with sin, secretly. You may be fighting great battles in your life. The reason you're fighting them is because you're born again and because that new nature is now within you and you're taking your stand. But all of us had this great identity change at conversion in John chapter 3. It happened in the moment of the new birth when something was born within you. John 3, verse 6 and 7, Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. A new spiritual birth happened the moment you came to him. You were born again, and a new you emerged it happened by the Spirit, and it was a part of that new birth. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You became a different person because he made you one. And now your Christian life should be characterized by a living out of that new identity more and more. Or if you get sidetracked or even shipwrecked, it's a returning to that hope and a growing back into it again. So let me ask you this, um, believer, are you different from you? In other words, are you different from the old you you used to be? Is there that dimension of new life, that new drive to love him and to defeat sin? Or if you came to Christ at an early age and you can't remember not walking with God, are you different from others that are in darkness? I hope you can say yes. I hope you can answer that yes. Only Jesus can do that, you see. And when you understand that, my friend, you'll be a lot less tempted to abandon him than you would before. Okay, let's go to the second image, verse 12. And then we'll see how all of this beautifully moves into communion. The second image in verse 12 talks about baptism. Again, we, we have an outer 
image that talks about a spiritual or inner transformation. He goes on and he says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This gets even more transcendental, if you will. Do you know that you've already been been dead and buried? (laughs) People saying, of course, I've seen my husband on a Saturday morning. He's dead and buried, you know, for crying out loud. No, I'm talking about a supernatural spiritual reality that happened to you that defines who you are now. Dead and buried, but also raised into a new life. Notice this happened both with Christ. You were buried with him and you were raised to a new life. And all of this is connected to the idea of baptism. Now, again, let's go through the three things. Ready? The biblical image. We all know or have seen baptism. When we do that here on our platform, a person comes down into the water, gives their testimony of faith, affirms the doctrine that we all believe, and they are baptized in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they go down into the water, and they come up out of the water, and the imagery of that and immersion is designed to show that they have been baptized into the death of Christ and raised up into the new life in Christ and that they are also leaving their old life of self and in baptism publicly showing that they want to live a new life for him. That's physical baptism, right? That's exactly what happens or has happened in your spiritual identity, Paul is saying. So that outward ceremony pictures something deeply, deeply significant. And by the way, there are people that in our new Christian society, just like in the old Jewish society, some people depend just on baptism as their ticket. (laughs) Have you seen this? They'll say, well, I was christened when I was six days old, or, or I was baptized into such and such a church at certain time in my life. So I am whatever that is. And that put me into grace that put me into, uh, an eternal future. And yet you see this total disconnect between what they said they were baptized into and how they're living. That's as deceptive as where the Jews were at. No, it it doesn't matter if you were put under a body of water if nothing's transformed in the nature of who you are. And Paul is saying this again. Listen, you don't need anybody to tell you you need anything else if Jesus has done this in your life. If the Lord has done this, you have everything you need. So what's the spiritual truth that baptism signifies? Well, there's two key words in verse 12. The first is buried, and the second is raised. Notice it, each of them happened with him. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was raised, you were raised. Buried signifies dying, as I said, to an old life. Raised signifies being raised into a new life. And it reflects a spiritual event that happened to you. And again, when you were born again, you entered into this reality spiritually. It was invisible. You were buried and raised in a nanosecond of spiritual time, and you didn't even know it, did you? But I'll bet your life is showing it now. Again, how do we find different ways that this is described? Well, there there are many. I'll go back to Romans 6. And again, in some earlier verses, this is mirrored in Romans chapter 6. Paul asks these Christians something that was so obvious they should already have known it. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, were you physically there when Jesus died on that cross? No. But here, hold on. Spiritually, you were. He chose you before, from before the foundation of the earth. And in a marvelous spiritual way, when he died, you died with him. You participated in that death. And when he rose out of the grave three days later, you were there too. And you rose in that marvelous experience of reality. It reflects a spiritual reality. When did this all become yours at your new birth, at your conversion? Oh, you find out that you were placed into him with, and his death with all of its benefits and into his life with all of its possibilities. It's a mystery. That's why I said at the beginning of this message, we're going to touch on things that are mysterious and that only the Spirit of God can unravel and reveal to you as you grow in Christ, but he does. This is what is called your new identity in Christ. Circumcision says that drive to sin that dominated your life has been has been cut down and it's been made powerless should you choose to exercise your power in Christ over it. And you can now start living as a person who loves righteousness. You can be different in the essence of who you are. But also baptism says that all the benefits of his death are yours. His death for your sin, his suffering for your sin, and the fact that you died to an old way of life and his resurrection as he rose into newness of life you can now live into newness of life in your future. That's why I said this talks about how only Jesus can change who you can be, your capability to live into the future in a brand new way. It's your identity. When you begin to understand that this is what Jesus has made you, then you begin to live into who you are. And you discover this ongoing miracle of the growth of grace. Yeah, it happened the moment you placed faith in the powerful working of God. This wonderful work you were part of at Calvary became real for you. I don't know how to describe it any way. Any other way, I'm going to let the Word of God do its work and stop trying to <laughs> make the, the difficult simple. But may speak to your hearts today. Here's the last dimension of it. Is there a personal reality that you can experience in all of this well, you were not only present that day and you were not only baptized into the death of Christ that day and part of his resurrection that day, it is also a present experience you can live out of every day. Do you notice that? Because he says in verse 4 of Romans 6, all of this happened, Christ was raised, so that we too might walk in newness of life. There he takes it into your present life right now. He goes from crucifixion day to today. And he's saying that, listen, if you want to obey Jesus now, do you know you have the power in him because his resurrection power is now in you because Christ is now in you, the hope of glory? So that if you want to try and trust him in a new way and obey him in a new way, when you step out, he will suddenly step up and you will see his resurrection power enabling you to do that. That is the power of the Christian life. That is your ability to become more like Jesus. And he says, that's the new life you can walk into, into your future. You can walk in newness of life. This is why no Christian is ever completely defeated. 
You say, oh, you haven't met me yet. Oh, yes. No Christian is ever completely defeated because you have the principle of new life within you and you can come out of that battle, however severe it is, and you can grow in holiness. And yes, even that dimension of your life can please him and reflect what he wants in your life. You can live in newness of life. He says, we trust him and we walk in that newness of life. Go back to our text as I close. And he says, this all happened because of the powerful working of God. Greek word is energeia. God worked in that moment and he blew his son out of the tomb. (laughs) That same powerful working is available through the Holy Spirit in your life today as he walks you away from sin and into obedience. You step out and walk and you watch him show up and work. That's the great possession of the Christian. So only Jesus can do that. And if only Jesus has done that in your life, won't you treasure him? Won't you cling to him? That's the basis of all that he's teaching. Only Jesus can change who you used to be by cutting away that old drive and that old addiction to sin. And only Jesus can change who you can be as you grow out of that miracle and become more like, his, more like himself. So at communion... We remember what Jesus did, don't we? I mean, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And we often focus, as we should, on one dimension of that, if you will, one dimension of salvation, and that's his payment for sin. And thus we will today. But did you know that there's two sides to salvation? There's two dimensions to what he did when he saved you? A lot of believers miss this. He not only made a full payment for your sin, he made you a new person in him. He actually changed your identity. He changed the dimensions of who you are. That's what we just spent 30 minutes talking about here. New dimension, new future. You are not only fully paid for, but you've been made a new person. And both are critical parts of salvation and critical parts of eternity. I mean, after all, God would never take an old you into a new eternity, would he? Can you imagine if we all get to go to heaven, but when we show up there, we're all the same people we are today? Oh, for crying out loud. You want to talk about a mansion? No, I want a country house away from all of y'all. <laughs> what would it be like if we were eternally saved but not eternally changed? And so he's done both. And that's what we celebrate in communion. And so as, the, as you hold the elements today and begin to get them into your hands, and as we meditate on communion, I want you to focus on the fact that not only he paid fully for you, he changed you, and he's going to continue to change you. And one day you're going to be just like him. All because of the cross. You see, this happened because you were buried to sin at the cross and he rose power. So that's what we'll celebrate today.